Hey, hello everyone. Welcome back to the channel. I'm William Hemsworth. It's great to be with you. It's been a while since I've done a show like this on YouTube. I've been doing a lot of shorts lately, but I'm trying to change that. And there's a lot more in the works for 2024, so stay tuned. But today I wanted to talk to you about discipleship. Specifically, what does the Gospel of Matthew tell us about discipleship? I mean, come on, it's the Christmas season. And during the Christmas season, um, the Gospel of Matthew is read because it's one of the two Gospels that contains the infancy narratives of our Lord. And it's very significant. But there are other pieces of the Gospel that give us clues on how to live a Christian life. And in fact, within Matthew's account, we see many scenarios of what it means to be a disciple of Christ. So by the tone of Matthew's writing, we can get the impression that these events were either experienced by Matthew directly or told to him by a reliable source, such as one of the other apostles, for example. And so to illustrate this discipleship theme in Matthew, I want to talk about many passages of Scripture. Now, among them, these are all from the Gospel of Matthew, or Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, chapter 5, verses 13 through 16, chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, chapter 9, verses 9 through 13, and then, of course, lastly, the Great Commission, 28 verses 19 through 20. So before we even get started in that, though, we need to know whom the gospel, who the gospel is intended for, because this helps establish the proper historical context uh, for the rest of the series of shows that I'm going to do, which will probably be two to three shows on this topic. So the gospel is most likely written in the last half of the first century and after the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, there are many reasons for that. Uh, first, it is widely believed that Mark was the first gospel written, probably around 65 AD, with Matthew and Luke following a couple of years later. Now, it's widely believed that Matthew and Luke used Mark's gospel as a type of a template, which would mean that Mark's gospel would have been in wide distribution at the time. And so this took a lot of time to happen in the ancient world. Secondly, the gospel shows a what we call a developed Christology, especially in regard to linking Christ with the events and people in the Old Testament. This is super important because Matthew links Christ to the fulfillment of the Old Testament and even arranged his gospel in five parts, like the five books of Moses or what we have known as the, the Pentateuch, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And though, furthermore, there's this repeated emphasis of fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and that shows that the gospel was written to a primarily Jewish audience. Now, perhaps these were Jewish converts, and this gospel was meant to strengthen them, or it was a way to evangelize those who rejected Jesus as the Messiah. So the, the idea of it being written to a primarily Jewish audience is really strengthened in chapter 2, verse 23, which says, quote, And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is important because these words appear nowhere in the Old Testament text. It was part of Jewish oral tradition that was only known to the Jews of the day. It was also likely written with both an apologetic and evangelism purpose in mind. So to strengthen the case for Christ being the Messiah, who was foretold in the scriptures, and to encourage those who did convert so they could stay the course and 
and know that they made the correct decision. And so lastly, we're going to look at the, the author. Okay, so as understanding his story sets a critical stage for the events that we're going to discuss later. So let's talk about Matthew for a minute. Matthew, who is sometimes referred to as Levi in other synoptic texts, synoptic is Luke and Mark because they have some similarities. Matthew made his living as a tax collector prior to following Jesus. His father is mentioned in Mark chapter 2, verse 14 as Alphaeus. And in John 19.25, he is known as Cleopas, which is uh, equivalent in Hebrew. Alphaeus is also the father of the, of the disciple James the Lesser. Thus, he has the distinction of being father to two people in the group of the apostles and the disciples. Other than that, there's not much more that we know about Matthew's father. Uh, Matthew was from the priestly tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi in the Torah was designated as the tribe in which the priests of Israel were to come. And their cities were cities of, refu of refuge for God's service. So we read about that in Numbers 35.6. This priestly vocation is one in which Matthew, he would have been groomed for it. Okay, At an early age, he would have been immersed in the study of scripture and rabbinic oral tradition like we saw in Matthew chapter 2, verse 23. However, he turned away from his heritage, and he became a publican. He became a tax collector. So as a tax collector, he worked for the occupying Roman Empire. And as such, he would have been seen, he would have been seen as a traitor to his people. The Jewish leaders thought of tax collectors as the lowest of the low. To be in such an occupation was to make one cut off from the Jewish community. Or in other words... He would have been unclean. Matthew worked for King Herod Antipas in collecting taxes on goods going from Damascus to the Mediterranean Sea. This post was this post was one in which only someone who had a great education could be in it. Okay, so this lends further credence to his priestly formation, as he would have had to know Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew. In the life of Matthew we see what it means to become a disciple of Christ as he left all of his wealth and luxury to follow Christ. And he would ultimately die as a martyr. In his gospel, Gospel of Matthew, he gives, he gives us many accounts and traits of what it means to a disciple. And they still apply today. And that's why I want to do this study with you guys. So first of all, what is a disciple? So this theme of what it means to be a follower of, of Christ starts very early in Matthew's account. My dog says hi. So in the fourth chapter of his gospel, he gives an account of the call of the first disciples. And we see this in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 through 22, which says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. In the boat was Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Now, perhaps this is one of those passages that's been read so many times 
that you're like, okay, I've heard this a million times, and it's kind of lost its significance. All right, so the call of the first disciples is an event in church history that cannot be understated. We really need to know what's happening here. There's this idea of Peter and Andrew being poor and therefore having nothing to lose has become a popular thought in modern Christianity. Excuse me. But is that really the case? To be a fisherman at the Sea of Galilee, Galilee was to be a participant in a thriving industry. In fact, the fish that the water yielded uh, was one of the primary sources of protein in the region. Fish was also the staple of protein of the Greco-Roman world. And the fish of Galilee were a highly prized delicacy in Alexandria, Egypt, and even in Syria. So it wasn't just a localized market. We're talking international business here. So Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 22, reveals um, that they had a minimum of one fishing boat. Now, however, it was a fairly common practice to form a cooperative of sorts, a a cooperative with other fishermen. But we can kind of see hints of this in Luke chapter 5. These cooperatives were vital because the fish of the sea were a key part of the economy. Okay? And it was a common practice for the Roman government to contract for fish for to go to other parts of the Roman Empire. To have a fishing, po- a fishing boat was no small expense. And it points to having a thriving business. And so... Realistically, putting this information together, the first disciples kind of had a thriving business going on here. It was a business where the fruits of their labor were not only prized locally, but it was also prized for cities a considerable distance away. Now, the home that Peter lived in in uh, Capernaum, which is on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, was excavated and found to be a two-family home. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 14, we see that Peter had a mother-in-law. Now, but whether his wife was still living at the time is a matter of debate because she's not really mentioned. But what is certain is that the the first disciples owned a boat and uh, they had a fairly large home. This demonstrated that though they may not have been overly wealthy, they they were likely the equivalent of today's middle class. So they weren't like dirt poor. And we can we could say the same. It's likely also the same for James and John. Now, there's something else that is strikingly interesting when we examine the four men mentioned in the passage. Jesus said to follow, and they dropped everything and followed. So they left their homes, careers, and families to follow Christ. Now, it is totally possible that this wasn't their first encounter with Jesus. After all, John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42 details what many believe to be the first encounter. This passage from John assists us in understanding Matthew from a different point of view. This passage shows us that Andrew and Simon, who would would be known as Peter, were originally disciples of John the Baptist. Jesus called them then and stayed the night at their home. This gives us a perspective to the events that happened in Matthew. Before Andrew and Peter left their fishing business, they met the Lord. It was in this scenario that Christ told Peter, then known as Simon, 
that he is now known as Cephas, or Peter in English. This is something that only happened previously in Genesis chapter 17, when the Lord changed the name of Abram to Abraham. In this scenario in Matthew chapter 4, we see the first disciples formally called to be students or disciples of Christ. In ancient Israel, the student did not choose his teacher, but it was the teacher who chose the student. Now, this wouldn't have been lost on the first disciples. You see, they had followed John the Baptist, and the Baptist told them to behold the Lamb of God, and that's in John chapter 1, verse 36. They were seeking the Messiah, and they dropped everything to follow Christ. During this time, a disciple did everything with the rabbi. They ate, uh, traveled with them, slept, and they were constantly taught. More importantly, a disciple was expected to drop everything and make a total change in lifestyle for an unforeseen period of time to be under the tutelage of the rabbi. Now, one of the images pertaining to discipleship in Matthew is the imagery of salt and light. And we see that found in Matthew chapter 5, verses, verses 13 through 16, which say, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled upon under one's uh, feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. In today's world, we think of salt and think of a condiment that serves to make food taste better. Now, to be honest, to be clear, that is one of the uses of salt in the ancient world but it had many more uses that were vital to the continuation of society. With no refrigeration, salt was used as a way to preserve food, uh, in particular meat, so it could be used later on. What is often lost in the interpretation of this passage is the symbolism of salt. Okay, but Jesus used its application here very intentionally. Salt was associated with a covenant going back to the book of Leviticus. You know, Leviticus is that book that when people are reading their Bibles in a year and they get to Leviticus, they're like, oh my goodness, I can't do this anymore. But to be honest, it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. Salt was an emblem of incorruption and permanence. And this would have made perfect sense to the first century Jewish reader to which Matthew was writing. To take it a step further, the use of salt in an offering symbolize an everlasting relationship between God and his people. Like I said before, the imagery of salt was symbolic of the covenant that God made with Israel regarding uh, Aaron and his descendants. It was also symbolic of the Davidic covenant for the descendants of David. This passage comes after the Beatitudes, which is a way that Christ describes how to live the Ten Commandments. The connection here in regard to discipleship is really important here. If disciples do not live up to their calling, they're useless for the kingdom. They have lost the purpose that salt has in this passage. To live up to one's calling is to spread the gospel through the actions of their lives, their speech, and their conduct. The second metaphor that Jesus uses in this text 
is that of a light on a hill. Light is something that is meant to be seen. When light is not seen, the people are in darkness. Oil lamps are used to light homes in times of darkness in the ancient world. So, therefore, the world around the disciples is in darkness, and they are called to bring the light of Christ to the world. It's interesting to note that the light of the world is a saying that Christ says about himself in John chapter 8, verse 12, and John chapter 12, verse 35. But here, Jesus is transferring the designation to his followers. Jesus blends this motif with the defensive posture of a city on a hill. Matthew is most likely alluding to the hilly city of Jerusalem at this point, since it would hit home with his audience. What sometimes goes unnoticed is that to be a city on a hill was also a defensive posture in ancient warfare. This would allow the soldiers to see approaching forces from great distances, and they'll be able to respond. In a world that has an ever-increasing hostility towards the followers of Christ, this is important. This defensive posture does not take the form of arrows or violence, but in showing the light of Christ and being that salt to a world that is losing its flavor. This passage builds on the Beatitudes and serves as a prologue of sorts. In a way, this passage acts as the mission statement for the Beatitudes. We are to live them and let them give light to change the world. This is what Jesus intends in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, when he tells the disciples to let the world see their good works so they can glorify God. If his disciples are not different than the world, then they are doing nothing for the kingdom and the light of Christ will not be shown through them. In rabbinic tradition, there's a saying that said, the people that walk in darkness will see a great light. Jesus is the light. And he transferred that light to his followers to spread it throughout the earth. So my friends, so far, we've seen the disciples drop everything to follow Jesus. And we have Jesus saying to breathe the light of the world, to change the world by your example, by your conduct, by your words, otherwise by your whole, by your whole self. But now let's talk about something difficult that Jesus tells us to do. Jesus gives a very clear example of what it means to be the light of the world later on in chapter 5. We see this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48, where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This passage is a clear indication of how disciples of Christ are supposed to treat those who persecute them. 
Now, however, some background is in order here. After all, this is the Bible Catholic. One of the titles that Matthew gives Jesus is that of the new Moses. When we read the accounts of Moses in the first five books of the Bible, and when we read the life of Christ, we see some similarities come up here. Moses wandered through the desert for 40 years, while Jesus went into the desert for 40 days to be tempted by Satan. Moses climbed up Mount Sinai and gave the Ten Commandments, while Jesus climbed up the mountain and delivered the Ten Beatitudes. This was no accident, because Moses was the supreme lawgiver in the Old Testament, and that law would be fulfilled perfectly by Jesus Christ. In Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 21, Moses said, Your eye shall not pity. It shall be life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. However, Jesus is telling us to love our enemies. Now, on the surface, this seems like a, contradic a contradiction here, but that's not the case at all. The verse in Deuteronomy is meant to convey the necessity for the punishment to fit the crime. So, in other words, this wasn't meant as a way to exact personal vengeance but it was a guideline for authorities to sentence offenders. So why mention eye for an eye when it isn't mentioned in Matthew chapter 5? It is mentioned because passages such as Deuteronomy chapter 19, 21 evolved through tradition as permission to hate one's enemy. And that's not what was intended. Here, Christ is telling his disciples, he's calling them to a much higher standard of conduct than their Jewish counterparts. So in layman's terms, Jesus was setting the record straight. Yes, Moses was the supreme lawgiver, but Jesus is greater than Moses and came to fulfill the law. Jesus would ultimately show us how to do this by asking forgiveness for his executioners. But here he also talks about how to live it. He wants his disciples to walk the talk. Those who we think our enemies are those who need love the most. They need the light, the love, and mercy that only Christ could give. The term used by Christ in this passage is agape. It's a term of benevolence, affection, or love, and it's used in two basic ways. So one way is love between people, and another way refers to the love of God. Christ is telling his followers not to follow the status quo. Now, for far too long, for too long, people were following the letter of the law and not the spirit of it. As a result, a law that was meant for just punishment became this guise for personal vengeance. This is not what God intended. And so Jesus gets to the point. If his disciples treat others the way that they are treated, then they are no different than others. They're no different than those who don't believe in Jesus. To tell one's followers to love their enemies was the very epitome of being countercultural. He was also countercultural in regard to who he's referring to as his neighbor in chapter 5, verse 43 in Matthew. Now, this isn't something unique to Matthew's gospel. We see this in Luke and Mark as well. Uh, the most famous being the story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Just as correct sentencing of a criminal morphed over time, so did the meaning of neighbor. During the time of Christ, the Israelites thought of their neighbor as another Israelite. Now, Jesus, just like 
if you've ever read the story of the Good Samaritan, he tells listeners that everyone is their neighbor. This was another countercultural idea that would set apart his followers because it shows that his message is for everyone, Jews and Gentiles alike. This even meant the much-hated occupying Roman Empire. Now, this doesn't mean that a disciple of Christ is to be a pacifist. That's an objection I get quite a bit. So if needed, self-defense is something one must do. These, But these verses are talking about in regard to morality. Jesus calls his disciples to not hate and love in a way that shows the love of Christ to all mankind. This shows that with Christ, they can look past how their sinful tendencies have them look at others and points them in a whole other direction. We see this in Matthew 5, 48, where Jesus says that they must be perfect just as the Father is. Jesus calls his disciples to a higher standard than what is found in the Old Covenant. The Greek word for perfect used here is teleios, which means to be complete of everything that God intends. Thus, Jesus summarizes what is meant to truly love your neighbor as a disciple. This passage sets a great stage for what would occur in Matthew chapter 9. In Matthew chapter 9, we see one of the most powerful stories in the gospel because it involves the call of Matthew himself. And th this takes place in, in, uh, takes place in Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. And says, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. As I mentioned a few minutes ago, my friends, Matthew was a tax collector in Capernaum on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. This was a major trading town. And he would have been responsible to collect the custom duties that were due in that bustling trade area. When, de when describing the call of Matthew, the other synoptics, Matthew and Mark, I'm sorry, Mark and um, Luke, refer to him as Levi. And Matthew is the only one who uses Matthew. Matthew is an Aramaic name that means gift from God. While Levi was the third son of Jacob in Genesis 29. Now, those of Jewish heritage who worked for Rome were seen as traitors, and they were seen as the lowest of the low. Now, unlike Andrew and Peter, there's no scriptural evidence to show that Jesus had met him previously. Now, it was a common practice of tax collectors of the era to engage in extortion. So they would make up a tax, and the people would have to pay uh, what was... And people have to pay. And what was not sent to the government was extra income for the tax collector. For someone of Jewish lineage to engage in this practice would be to break the law of Moses in regard to usury. Yet Jesus calls him. And he answers the call. And he follows. The calling of Matthew to be a disciple was an event that placed Jesus in a scandalous position 
as far as the Pharisees were concerned. People like Matthew were to be shunned. But this is an example of Jesus seeing Matthew as a neighbor, as was discussed in Matthew chapter 5. Now, perhaps it was that sermon that opened up the heart of Matthew to heed the the call of Christ, but of course that's speculation on my part. What is known is that sometime after Matthew became a disciple, he has dinner at his home for Jesus. Matthew invited his former associates in the tax collection trade and what the text simply refers to as sinners. So they come to Jesus in huge numbers. Now, even though Matthew was a new follower, a new disciple, if you will, he was changed radically by Jesus. And he wants his former friends, his former associates, not his former associates to meet him. Not only is this a great example of discipleship, but of evangelism. The Pharisees saw this as an opportunity to undermine Jesus in front of a large crowd, a large crowd who really needed him. Jesus responds masterfully with a scripture from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. That passage of scripture says, quote, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So this passage from Hosea was written during a time when the kingdom was divided among north and south kingdoms. Hosea was a prophet to the northern kingdom and addressed them as being sick and wounded because of their sin. In Hosea's time, the people appeared to be following the covenant, but they were only following the ritual. And because they were only following the ritual, their hearts were not changed. Like the people in Hosea's time, the Pharisees, they looked apart. They did the right rituals, they said the right things, but their actions said a different different story. It told a story of someone going through the motions, and in the end, someone following their own way. In a way similar to the people of Hosea's time, the Pharisees rejected the Messiah in favor of Mosaic law. They chose the old law instead of the one who could institute, who would institute the new covenant. The tax collectors and sinners that Jesus was eating with were considered to be ritually unclean by the Pharisees. And so by extending the hand of mercy, Christ is fulfilling what Israel had been intended to truly be. An instrument to the world that was sick, that could pave the way for the work of the great physician. You see, the Pharisees lost sight of that divine mission that was given to Israel by following the letter of the law instead of the spirit of the law. Jesus came to give forgiveness in the new covenant. And being with those who were sick with sin was a key part of his work. Likewise, his disciples, you and I, are called to follow that example. So far, we've seen how the discipleship theme is deeply intertwined within Matthew's gospel. We see the call of the first disciples, how they left their families, their homes to follow. We saw what it means to be the salt of the earth. We saw the call of Matthew. Matthew ends his gospel with a call for discipleship. That's commonly that's become commonly known as the Great Commission. 
we see this great commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, which says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Thus far, so far, I've given a lot of detail on a few sections of Matthew's gospel that deal with discipleship. One other is Matthew chapter 13, verse 52. This passage speaks of scribes being trained for the kingdom and it will bring about treasure. This theme is one that starts at the beginning of the gospel and ends the Great Commission. Again, Matthew 28. Christ gives a command to evangelize and to go forth and teach the world. This command is not strictly for the disciples that physically heard it, and is not for only our priests, deacons, catechists. No, this command applies to all those who make the claim to follow Jesus. This commission has its roots back in the Old Testament when the Lord told Abraham that all nations would be blessed in Genesis chapter 22, verse 18. Now, this type of mission was not uncommon, but it didn't happen very often. There were occasions, such as Jonah, where God told someone to go to a foreign land to tell them to repent. But really, the Great Commission was a novelty. It was a clear-cut example of a new paradigm shift um, that had been established, and the old way was no longer the norm. This new way is one that must be made known to every creature, as Mark 16, 16 tells us. Now, with his work on the cross and the resurrection complete, Jesus commissions the believers, his disciples, to spread his message. It is a mission that confirms the authority of Christ, it has very clear instructions. And in a way, the disciples take the place of Jesus on earth, though Jesus is still with them and Jesus is working through them, the Holy Spirit. This passage is also where the Trinitarian formula for baptism is seen. Matthew's gospel is the only one that specifically lists it. But the mention brings to mind the baptism of John the Baptist way back at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Jesus submits to it because he's leading by example. And we be, when we're baptized, we're baptized not only into the church, our sins are forgiven, we're wiped clean, and we are adopted sons of God. Now, John was already baptizing, but this gives Christian baptism a new identity. One that was in the name of the triune God and revealed the unity of each member of the Godhead. Throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus has been the teacher, but in the Great Commission, Jesus transfers that responsibility to his disciples. They are to teach what Jesus had taught them. Now, I can only imagine what was going through the minds of the disciples when they heard this. Uh, maybe some anxiety, some fear, or maybe maybe terror. I don't know. But, however, Jesus makes a profound promise that will last until the end of their lives. And really to the end of time itself. 
Not only does this close out the gospel, but it brings the description of Christ from the beginning of the gospel back to the forefront. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, Emmanuel, which means God with us. Though we are here on earth doing the work that he has given us, his presence is with us and he's directing our paths. So my friends, throughout the last several minutes, 30 minutes, we've gone through some passages of scripture and analyzed how they apply to discipleship. It's a theme that begins at the very beginning and it culminates in the very last verse. Now, there's a lot of other passages that go into great detail on topic, but I want to close here with a summary of the Gospel of Matthew and give a finalized idea of what it teaches about discipleship. So, just like the other three Gospels, the primary objective of Matthew is to share details about the life of Christ. This happens first in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, where Matthew writes that Jesus will save the people from their sins. Like any true evangelist, Matthew wants to convey the saving power of Christ and what he did for mankind. Matthew intertwined discipleship elements into his gospel to show its importance for all of us. The conflict that is seen throughout the gospel assists in offering an antagonist type of perspective. Here's a group that has great intellectual knowledge of the of scripture. Uh, they know when to do things. They know why. Um, but they're missing a crucial element. They're kind of missing the point a little bit. They're doing study and ritual to say that they're doing it. Uh, but the whole while, it's not changing their heart. They have the head knowledge, but in reality, they're still far from God. This is a valuable lesson for us all. Because if we lose sight of who Christ is, then there's a risk of falling into the same trap that the Pharisees did. They followed the letter of the law, but they lost sight of the spirit of the law. Now, perhaps somewhere along the line, this is where Matthew found himself and became a tax collector. Or perhaps it was strictly the lure of a wealthy lifestyle. Of course, we don't know. That's kind of speculation. But we do know that he gave it all up one fateful day when he encountered the Savior of the world. Jesus said two simple words, and Matthew literally turned his life upside down. He left his old life behind and moved forward to a new life with Christ. This was also the case with Andrew, Peter, James, and John in Matthew chapter 4. They left behind a thriving fishing business to follow someone to the unknown in his public ministry. I mean, it was really a leap of faith. Matthew's gospel focuses focuses a lot on Jesus as the new Moses because the teaching of Christ is the application of what the law was supposed to be. Jesus fulfilled it perfectly and showed the disciples how to do the same. Excuse me. The principles of following where Christ leads, loving those who mistreat you, living a life that reflects the light of Christ, and teaching those things along with the saving power of Christ are what Matthew teaches us to do as disciples. As was the case with Matthew, being a disciple may cause us to catch the scorn of those who think they know better. Now, we're not to match hate for hate as some of the Pharisees had fallen into doing, but we're to do the opposite. Now, to be fair, it is not easy to love one's enemies, especially when they're act active in afflicting pain and punishment. 
I mean, it's hard. In times such as this, it is appropriate to lift them up in prayer. One of the greatest things we can do for an enemy is pray for them. Lastly, Matthew shows us how a life can be transformed by following Christ. Matthew was seen as the lowest of the low among Jews because of his occupation with Rome, but he had wealth and prestige among the Romans. He had everything that the world says will make one happy, but he wasn't, and he dropped everything to follow Jesus. He went 180 degrees in the opposite direction, and his life was radically changed, and according to the tradition, he was martyred in Ethiopia for doing what Christ commanded in the Great Commission. Well, my friends, we spent a lot of time today going through the Gospel of Matthew, talking about discipleship, how our lives can be changed, radically changed by Christ. So my challenge to you, are we doing some of these things that the Gospel of Matthew is saying? Are we being like the Pharisees? Are we, um, are we going to Mass every week, but we're not being changed? Are we not letting our heart be changed? Are we matching the anger of our enemies with the anger of our own? So we really, this is these, these are hard teachings here. But this is what it means to be a disciple. Now we're still human. We're going to make mistakes and thank God for the sacrament of reconciliation. But if we're struggling with these things, let's pray for the Holy Spirit to move in us so we can truly be disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right. God bless you guys. If you enjoy this, please share it. Please subscribe. And again, thanks all for your support. God bless you.